Welcome to the watering hole. I'm Bara'a. And I'm Baraita. And today we're joined in studio by Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who are you and why are you here? And where were you on the night of the 13th? Well, <laughs> all these questions. My name is Liz Clark. I also go by Hidibasile. I'm a child and youth care practitioner and a spoken word poet and rapper in Ottawa. I was born in Scarborough, but here I am five years later in Ottawa. So why did you come to Ottawa? Did you come for school or? I came to Ottawa to go to the University of Ottawa um, for public administration. But two years in, I said, nope, and I got to Got to go. So I left there for two year, after two years and went to Algonquin College for child and youth care. And I fell in love. What made you realize you want to do child and youth care when you left? Because I left programs too and I had mm. like a pretty different... Because I thought about you too. Yeah. Everybody I, makes mistakes. I had a, everyone has a <laughs> I, I had those. I had that like a definitive moment about two weeks into my program. Ooh. And I was like, this is horrible. I need out. So was there a moment like that for you? Yes, there was this big assignment that we had for a psychology class, and I couldn't do the assignment. I really wanted to, and then after after uh, that night, I just realized I did not want to be in this program, and um, I just decided that I wanted to be on the front line working with youth, and I wanted to go into the Ministry of Education, but I couldn't do the behind the scenes. I needed to be at the front line. Cool, and actually, I had the I had the pleasure of uh, meeting Elizabeth at my work. So we work together. We are colleagues. Unfortunately or fortunately, however she wants to see it, it's fine. For me, it's a very fortunate thing because uh, Liz and I realized that we were <laughs> some of the only, the handful of, um, if you want to say, colored people. Bam. Uh, bam. Bam. Of Bam. That's black, Asian, minority, ethnic. I just told them that that's what they're referred to in the UK. And, and now it's a thing. I don't, I think it might, like, as Bureda said, it might be BAME. <laughs> like lame. Bam. Bam. Um, like bam. Yeah, it's probably bam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah you were so that, 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 that's basically how, uh, well, well, we worked together and then we ended up clicking a lot of things because we were the, ha- the basically few, I would say, minorities. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, one of the reasons we wanted to yeah. talk about, about how the frontline children, even like adult care, social services are so dominated by white folks and, and like middle class white women a lot of the time. Very true. And how uh, what's interesting. That's so true. Is what's so interesting about that is that usually the people that they are caring for or that they are quote unquote helping or supporting don't look like that. Mm-hmm. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> oh, how many conversations we've had. So, <laughs> so what was, did you realize that, that right away? Like, did you know, I didn't know going in. When, mm-hmm. I, when I first started working in the NGO sector, mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I, for some reason, assumed, okay, well, they're, they're, they're mostly serving, let's say, new immigrants. They're going to be former immigrants or they're going to be whatever. Turns out wasn't the case. And I, and I learned that through observation over time. When did you notice? I'd say my eyes really opened once I started working in Ottawa. I've been working with children for the past seven years. I've always noticed that I I am a minority, but when you start to um, really pick up the trend that white women are, white people are really occupying these positions and that the communities they're serving, they're actually not represented uh, they don't represent those communities, then my eyes really open, especially in the past three years in my program. And it's, I'm a huge advocate for net, there, that now in my program and in uh, my place of work. So I'd say the last three years is when my eyes really popped open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, okay, this is, I'm going to take it a step back, I suppose. Mm-hmm. When did you, as Liz Clark, realize that you were a minority and you were, mm. and it was different for a minority? 
Wow. Did you ever have like I know that, that that's a that's a, that's a pretty deep yeah. question, but yeah. for me, like I only had that realization. Well, like yeah, a, a distinct realization and a very very uh, deep realization when I came here. Mm-hmm. Um, here is I was always like guys. an outsider in Thailand, but I, I like I was like whatever. I didn't never look into it. You weren't mm-hmm. an outsider. You weren't you weren't an outsider simply because of a skin color, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. right? Unless I'm wrong. No, no, I, I, I was, yeah, I, I was an outsider because of skin color oh, there. Cool. Uh, but racism. Like, but I never. But, but the thing is, I never, I never took hold. Like I never yeah. paid attention to it too much. Yeah. And, but here, I saw like it. It was happening considerably all around me, and I saw uh, the systematic discrimination that was taking place mm. wherever I went. And so uh, that's when I tr- truly uh, sought out to own my heritage mm-hmm. and own my uh, identity mm-hmm. so when did you own um, your identity i m- must have been very young um i would say the first time i can recall at this point is when i was walking with a neighbor and she just all of a sudden just said i don't like black people out of nowhere and we were walking with her mom and they had lived in tanzania for years and all of a sudden we're walking down the road i don't like black people and i was like okay but we're we're still gonna go hang out though. So that I don't I don't know as, as a child that I knew how to react. I didn't yeah. tell my mom about it yeah. and tell anybody. Mm-hmm. It was just something that she said, and our families were still close after that, you know. But that's that's a moment I can look back now and can see. Whoa, that was the the start to when I realized I was black. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting is that like when you're a child, it's like so, it, or even I don't know even a teenager. I would say you you feel that something is off but you don't necessarily have the vocabulary for mm-hmm. it like you don't have the vocabulary to be like that's racist you yeah. know what i mean like you can't just hate a certain group of people like or, no or say it like almost proudly or mm-hmm. whatever right and so, so confidently yeah and so you know it's it's interesting because children have that like lack of filter that mm-hmm. i guess facilitates them saying things like that so mm-hmm. freely I remember hearing someone say this one time is like oh the difference between growing up as a girl or a guy is you're you're socialized as a girl to know you're a girl. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, and, and what comes with being a girl in society's eyes. And so I think that a lot of being, like being a racial minority mm-hmm. is like that. It's like, you know, something is different. You're, um, you're basically, your society builds you up into difference. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on what, what your family is like, what your communities are like, that difference can be like amplified or not. You know, some people try to ignore ignore the difference. In my experience, I think that a lot of people, like a lot of Muslim people until this day, are it's kind of like a if we don't talk about it or deal with it, it's not difference. It's not real. It's not happening. Like just put your head down and work hard and you'll get where your white counterparts are getting, right? And so it's yeah, it's interesting. I want to pose the same question to you, but uh... when did I know that I was different? So I had a little bit of a weird weird childhood because I went to an Islamic school. And uh, when you go to an Islamic school from a young age, I realized you don't ever have a moment where you where you think you're different. I, li- I also lived in like Bayshore, where so many of the people there are new immigrants, so many of them are Muslims. I did have friends who are not Muslim, but most of them were new immigrants or low-income white people who happen, that tends to be the demographic in low-income housing usually, you know, or rental housing. And I, so I would go to school and my teachers wore hijab and they were Muslim and my other teachers had a beard and it was so normal. Like I was in a very insular community. 
in retrospect, I think that was good because I never, like, I saw Muslim women teaching and running schools and the principals were always women in hijab and Muslim women and brown women. I mean, of course, the school has its issues in many ways, <laughs> including it not being particularly welcome to black people mm -hmm. or the black Muslim community. But I think that helped me, the being in that Islamic school, not feel that being Muslim was debilitating. But I would say that the moment I realized I was different was in fifth grade and I had just worn hijab. I was in a public school in a small town, Camel Spirits, Columbia, and I was playing hopscotch and someone said something about Christmas and I said, I don't celebrate Christmas. And they said, are you a Jehovah Witness? <laughs> And then I was like, no, but okay. And I think that moment, I mean, like, I guess it's humorous, but like there was a moment where it's like, oh, everyone, like 90% of the class or 99% of the class celebrates Christmas and you don't. And that was like a moment where I felt like, okay, I'm going to have to alter some of the things I say or do so that I have to I explain, you know, you're always on the like, explain this, explain this, explain this on the defensive. So yeah, I think that would probably be the first time that I felt like I was different. And then also another time, uh, kind of as an adult was, and this happens a lot, it still happens to me. I have quite a, well, I have a lot of white friends and it's when I'm with my white friends and I see how they're treated. Like if we're in line at Starbucks, this happens a lot, like how their interaction is with the white barista and my interaction is with the white barista. And it's when you see, right? Cause you've never like, I'm never not gonna be racialized Muslim. I don't know what it's like not to be, right? And so when you see it like happen, you're like, oh, right? Like, oh, I guess people get treated better, you know? Oh, that's wild. Yeah. yeah I had the same, th well, in terms of the Muslim school, because I taught in a Muslim school for three years, and that was my first professional experience really in a Muslim school, actually the same Muslim school she went to. I was very comfortable. It was, everybody knows you're Muslim, everybody's Muslim around you. You're doing your thing, it's, it's your own culture. And then once I stepped out of, uh, once I left that position and I ventured out into positions outside of the Muslim school and the Muslim community, I realized how much difference, and like I felt of basically, in, in a sense, sort of whitewashed uh, a lot of the service industry is, and like the community service in industry is. And it's there's a huge dis discrepancy, and I've told Liz this a bunch of times, and it's like how, and we alluded this earlier and how there's a huge discrepancy between the, the people who are providing the service and who are receiving the service. Mm. And it, and we, we, we brought up the question as to why is there so much more service needed now? And we came up with the answer that clearly there's this discre discrepancy is causing maybe more problems rather than solutions. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so well, it's one thing, it's one thing to provide people with services and it's another, like, so there has been, there's been, like, there's a lot of studies on all sorts of workplace-related things about gender and about di racial di and gender diversity. And literally almost, and I read a lot of these because I work in human resources. And one of the things that almost always comes up is that it doesn't matter how much a, a, a company or an organization says they champion diversity. The main marker of uh, diverse staff is a diverse executive. Mm -hmm. Like, Literally almost Amen. always. Yeah, There's I never been like, that. and it's not even like, it's not even like left-leaning think tanks, like McKinsey, an, like McKinsey, who's actually kind of a problematic consultancy group, 
has a study that says this. Like lots of the big firms that, that do research about this say this. Like it's not revolutionary and it's not radical to even to, to say that because that's just kind of how it works. If there are, it's been shown that if there are more women on boards and more women in executive and C, what they call like C-suite executive, like so CEOs, CFOs, all those, if there's more women on there, if there's more racial diversity on that, it's going to be reflected like downwards and that's just the way it is what you see a lot of in private companies and in the public sector is a lot of a lot more racial diversity than there used to be in entry-level jobs and that's it yeah and it starts to wean it you you have a little bit in like managerial a little bit and then it's like disappeared the moment you hit like a director level it's gone gone and um it's just like in uh uh, universities and yeah and universities yeah. it's like the brochure is like one brown person yep. one black person in we'll a wheelchair in one hijabi like one queer person and then like you go look at the faculty page and it's like white man white man white man white woman old white yeah. Man. Yeah. <laughs> white woman yeah yeah like white woman yeah so it's it's frustrating that it's just, it's not just about like, sure, they're receiving services and like it looks good for their organization. Or sorry, they're providing services, looks good for the organization because they can say, look how many, you know, brown, black, whatever, Asian people that we've hired. Mm-hmm. You fit the quota. Yeah, exactly. And and to to look good. But when people are making decisions and making policies and making things like that, it's it's not the people who are being served. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll pose this question to Liz. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're still young and you're a vibrant student. Yes, I am. Uh, from where you're at, where you're standing, what do you see as the most viable way as to tackling this? In school? In school and as you move into your professional career. I've had this conversation a lot, especially with my faculty within the last month. I'm a class rep for my uh, program in my third year and we get together and we talk about this and at the last meeting we had I almost broke down trying to explain the experience of black students in my program and I I was brought in by my teacher to really talk about what the experience is like and what they can change and I keep telling them invite us to the conversation and there are so many small ways that you can make room for people of color whether they say they have no control over hiring and systems they say the, these people, colored people are not applying for the jobs. I don't have a say in what's going on at that level, but on the level, especially in schools, change your curriculum. Incorporate mm. these conversations where we can discuss the matters of race, the matters of um, the, the clientele that we'll be serving, especially in child and youth care. In, in social work fields, the majority of our clients are of color. They're immigrants. They're newcomers. They they are underserved populations. And then when you put a, a, a person who does not represent that in those spaces to serve them, what does that say? What message is, is that sending to our youth, to, the, to, the, to that clientele, right? And um, I just keep telling them, include us in the conversation. Include us at the table. Hire us. We're qualified. It really simple steps. Yeah, simple I, steps. I, one of the things that I, I have kind of come to realize is that I almost, will almost not trust any organization in their diversity championing unless their boards and their staff, like unless they're hiring black, brown, Muslim, mm-hmm. whatever people. I'm, I don't trust them. That's just how it is for mm-hmm. me. And I've decided, I guess, that one of the ways that because you know. 
I liked your question, Boreda, because a lot of people say to me, when I complain, they say, well, there are no solutions. And the classic, like, oh, they're not applying to jobs. Yes. First of all, maybe they aren't. Maybe that's true. But, but you should ask yourself why. What's yeah. Can you they access the job? Exactly. Do, like, why? Is it how you wrote the job description? Is it who you circulated it to? Is it? And, and so unless you're, I would say, is that hiring people. Essentially, I think that hiring people and promoting them to positions of power is the way to start to make change because it's just naturally what's going to happen. People who look like other people are going to have natural sympathies, mm-hmm. um, are going to understand some... It doesn't mean that every single black person is going to agree with every single black person or every Muslim person. Like It's not like that, but mm-hmm. it's, it's the ability to perhaps see past it and mm-hmm. find some com- commonality. And I think that it's really rare that happens and I notice it myself when I look around my workplace I see that a lot of teams that have women managers and diverse diverse racially diverse managers that's reflected in their teams mm-hmm. and vice versa you know you know we have a like a male manager a white male manager every single guy on his team is every single person on his team is a guy who looks almost exactly like him right and so it's just kind of i think how it will play out and so mm-hmm. when you start to when you when you actively when as organizations you know actively say and that might mean quotas like I am someone who does believe in quotas to a certain point. I mm-hmm. think that there needs to be, to kickstart something, mm-hmm. you need to say, we're going to hire 25%, you know, or whatever, 30%, mm-hmm. you know, newcomers, for example. Because without it, it seems like it's not happening. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's basically right. at a deadlock and a stalemate right now. It's just like, oh, we don't have enough applicants or we have no applicants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so therefore, we're just going to go with what we know, which is hiring yeah. Who we normally hire yeah and friends and, you know yeah exactly friends connections all, all all that stuff and it all gets in the way of what's truly important especially in community service centers mm-hmm. where you sh- those things should a- actually come last like i know like you were saying having a quota of 30 what 25 30 percent yeah it'll definitely help and having them hire people i guess changing how because job descriptions are very generic and when it comes to, in, in my opinion, jobs that are dealing directly with uh, minority clientele or very, very uh, vul- vulnerable clientele, the job description should be a bit more specialized in, in order to get a very specific candidate rather than just a vague candidate list where they're just, just going to pick from, oh, they have this education, da 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 It should be a more specialized system, in my opinion. Yeah. I think that one of the... It starts, I mean, it starts really young. Like, I would say it starts even in university or before that and who's actually getting, you know, getting educated But one in those fields. But one of the things that, I mean, I was always very judgmental, Bureda, you know this. Like, I've always been judgmental with my own Muslim community about, like, you know, why is everyone an engineer? Like, there was, I was speaking to someone, I forget who, but they were telling me that indigenous communities across Canada made an active decision a few decades ago to start pushing high school students, indigenous high school students, towards law schools as opposed to medical schools. I was talking to you about this, but there was somebody else who was there. And I forgot who told us this, yeah. but L Jones. L Jones. L Jones, yeah, I think. Yeah. yeah. And she told us she was like they started L Jones. She they started pushing them towards right law schools because mm-hmm. every time anything happened, the Supreme Court would tell the indigenous folks, take it to the courts. 
You know, like, oh, you don't like what we're doing in this community? Take it to the courts. And then it's there forever. And no, it doesn't get done. And so I, I believe that in many ways, this like this, we live in a society that is all about laws. And it's all and that is how British and French uh, imperial systems work to eradicate groups of people is like they created all sorts of laws. Like you can't hunt at this time. You can't do this and you can't do that. Right. And and so to counteract it, to push back, right, there needs to be an active role on some communities to say like we're going to go here and I know one of the things that is really important is you know childhood education and childhood sports because that's where things get you know that's where people are almost vulnerable and that's where the things I wanted to ask I think we both want to to ask and have a little conversation around that is we talked about how we felt when we were different and one of the things that comes up when we feel different, when we are different, is this phenomenon of being like the only one, mm -hmm. of being like the only non-white person in a room, in a program, in whatever. I was that person. I am that person very frequently. How does that, like, when do you notice that you are that person a lot? And Absolutely. how does that feel? Absolutely. All the time. Even when I was younger, I would go to a store with my mom and say, Mom, we're the only two black people here. Yeah. She's like, stop it. I'm like, but... <laughs> It's an observation that I just grew to just continue to recognize in every space I go into because it contributes to sometimes to who I um I am and, and who I have to be. In some situations, I hate having to change who I am, but I do have to put on something so I'm perceived in a way that I know that is true to my core. I don't want to be represented for something I'm not. Um, so there are sometimes, you know, you, you change the way you talk sometimes. You just, put, mm -hmm. you know, you, you fix your posture and you, you walk in a different way so that people take you seriously. And rooms now, when I see that I'm the only person of color, it's so frustrating now, more than it ever was to me before. I can now say that it, it, it really hurts my heart when I'm somewhere and people cannot consider that people of color should be in this space, especially when it's for things of changing policy or having discussions about advocacy and, you know, bringing in voices. And then there are no people that are representative of these voices in a room. It frustrates me to the core because you cannot create change with those pe without those people at the table. It just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So I notice now because the spaces that I occupy are now creative art spaces and, you know, poetry spaces, young adult places where people are getting together to be creative and to, to create social change. And when you start noticing, hey, there, there are people missing here, mm. then there are things in the community that we're not addressing if people are missing because we're not um, fully aware of the problems that may be uh, prevalent for, the, for those communities unless they're at the table, right? Yeah. And one of the things that, so go ahead. That, that little situation where you said you were with your mom at the grocery store and you're like, this, there's only, we're the only two black people here. It's very comical, but it's, it's a very significant thing because I think your mom did what every new, I'm not sure if your mom was a new immigrant to this she's country. Immigrant, yeah. She's, she's, she's an immigrant or what a lot of immigrants do. I'm not going to say every. Yeah, what the, I, what, the first. It's just like, you know, oh, immigrants. we're immigrants in this country. We're guests. Yeah. We, we, we should not, rock we should not, boat, we should right? not rock the boat and we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't cause a ruckus. And then, and, and I feel like all, <laughs> all the, well, when all the, the new immigrants came to this country, everybody came with that mindset mm -hmm. of, oh, we, we, we have to, we, we have, we can't stir the pot, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, let, let them do their thing. Th thank you for letting us into your, into your land yeah, sort of thing. That's right. And then that, that, that's the mentality that we've been living in until, um, up until this day. And now, the youth that have grown up with that, just like, yeah. just like us. We just, we soaked up that Western entitlement. I understand that. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. that's not how it should be because yeah. this is our country just as much yeah. as it, it, it is yeah. theirs. 
I have to have a say in it. So I, I, it's it's important on for us to let new immigrants know and current immigrants and whoever, whoever is a citizen of this country and whoever lives in this country know that yeah you you should you should be making a change you should have you should own your identity from a young age mm-hmm. and then understand what issues are most relevant to you and your community and then push for that and grow into or help help the community grow into what will make life better for you and your people yeah. and accept that there are differences within people and own it and try to you know try to come together to yeah. to fix it rather than just hide behind uh, closed doors. Well, it's that I think it's that shame and that like idea of like being grateful that a lot of mm-hmm. people, people not people, but a lot of the, the 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 mainstream banks on for there not to be change, right? Like there, it's banking on I'm shaming you that you have a job here. Well, you know what? Like it's people like people should have the right to a job and to healthcare. Like that shouldn't be that shouldn't be like, oh my God, this is a big deal, right? Like shouldn't be like we're doing something for you. And this comes from the idea I think of like a lot of, you know, a lot of privileged people, a lot of times that means white people feel like they own public space. It's like, no, you can, you know, you can occupy space, like even sidewalks. I've been, I've been so like (laughs) cognizant about how many times I'll move over Mm -hmm. or be, you know, step off the sidewalk to be on the street to let a group of, you know, white teenagers by. And it's like, wait a second, why did I do that? Like, I can walk on a side of the street. This like too real. They can this walk. Too real. They can walk on the other side of the street, right? And sometimes, and it's crazy because I'm like, wow, this radical act of me using a sidewalk. Like, it shouldn't be that. You know, it shouldn't be like that. They're, Damn immigrants. Yeah, like it shouldn't be like that. But you know, but it is. And I've I've had many instances where like. I forgot to hold the door open or something and I get a dirty look and it's like, well, and then I have to say to myself, no, this isn't on me. You know, like Mm -hmm. this isn't about me. This is about, or like being on the bus. I hate the bus. I hate public transportation in Ottawa for this reason. Well, for many reasons, but (laughs) one of the main reasons is just like, I'm on edge. I'm like, is someone like, I've seen so many instances of discrimination against indigenous folks, against black folks, elderly, the elderly just like being harassed. And that it's just, it puts me on edge. It's like, oh, there's this idea that, you know, it's like we you need to be like as small as possible and like fit into this small little space. No, even physically. And I was reading, I've been reading, um, side note, my news resolution, I'm trying to read a lot more. And I've been reading a, a book by Bell Hooks called uh, Black Looks, Race and Representation. And one of the things she says about how um, there's a lack of, um, she thinks, she argues there's a lack of like black female literature, autobiographical literature. And she says that what it does is that it makes it feel like it makes any black woman who like publishes anything feel like she is, if she makes like any mistake, she's not worthy. And she says that that's why we need in minority communities, like an idea of like what she calls like a critical affection or something like that, where you can feel comfortable because like, that's what happens when you're the only one, like you need to be perfect. Or you feel like you need to be perfect. Like, if you don't say everything perfectly and do everything perfectly, and if you're not exceptional, you don't deserve that seat at the table. But it's not true. Look around you. All the white people at the table aren't exceptional, right? They're just there, and they feel like they're allowed to be there. And so I think that that's one of the things is that, like, I don't, I reject this idea of, like, oh, you have to be an exceptional personal person of color to make it. You don't. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be that way. Like, it shouldn't be, like, only the top, whatever, Rhodes Scholar, brown person can be CEO. It's like, well, you know, like the average brown person should have a shot at it. 
Yes. So if anybody's hiring, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to be the CEO of your company. <laughs> that was a really good conversation. Think yeah. about being average. We're not average, though. We are all exceptional yeah. for what we've been through, just what our people have yeah. been through and what's passed on through generations. We're automatically exceptional in my head. Mm-hmm. Well, Liz, you are an ex- exceptional person. We have we had an exceptional conversation with you. And you're doing, you're doing some exceptional things. What are you doing these days uh, to... Uh, to what spark change in our community. Yeah, change. tell there us. Go. What, what sidewalks are you walking on? Ooh, Ooh. Um, what sidewalks am I owning? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. A lot of sidewalks these days. Um, I just launched my career as a, a rap artist, Hidibusile, you know, Elizabeth spelled backwards. So uh, I'm doing rap, and a lot of my rap is a lot of advocating. I'm doing a lot of work in the community with young people. I'm working on a workshop right now that I hope to launch um, sometime this year, beginning of next year, uh, for youth and marginalized communities, bringing in that creative arts, that hip-hop culture, African culture, um, doing some cultural grounding in communities. I'm doing a lot in the music industry. Just anything, anything where the youth are, that's where I am. Where can they find you? Instagram is the place for me right now, at H-T-B-S-L-E, Herbasile. <laughs> That's where I can be found. Nice. And where can they find us, bra? WHpod.com. That's WHpod.com. And on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, it's WHpod. And we have all of our previous episodes on the website. And we have some good content on Instagram and Twitter. So follow us there. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, for joining us today. And I guess, guys, we'll see you next time. Well, we won't see you. You'll hear us next time. Bye. (laughs) Maybe they'll see us.